Well, amen. It is great to worship with you. And man, those songs we just sang together are just a great picture of what we're going to discover today. That what Jesus does, what God does for us, washes us as white as snow. It cleanses the leper spots. If you're with us last week in 2 Kings, you know we saw four miracles that all point to Jesus. One of the most profound ones was a, 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 there's a, a poor woman who needs oil. Then there's a rich woman who creates kind of a, a house modeling project for Elisha. But she's never had a son before. He prophesies a miracle son. That son then dies. And then that son is raised from the dead by Elisha. A clear picture of Jesus. The prophesied son that dies is raised. Then we saw some stew, a reminder of Jesus' fulfillment. That Elisha fed 200, 100 people rather with uh, 20 pieces of bread. And Jesus would one day feed 5,000 people. 5,000 just men, let alone the rest of the people with some bread. And we've primarily been looking at how God has been working through Jewish people and the Jewish nation. But today we're going to make a switch. We're going to start seeing that Jews can rebel against God and Gentiles can actually believe in God. And the question the text is going to ask us, if you're a chess player, and can I admit, I was in chess club. I was in chess club. And I was all right. When you play chess, you can trade bishops, you can trade pawns, you can trade knights, but the one thing you can never trade is kings. You don't trade kings, you just get the other guy in checkmate so that your king reigns supreme. But the question we're going to ask today as we look at the story of Naaman, Gehazi, and Elisha is, is it time to trade kings? Is it time to say, I say that God is the first king in my life, but I've really made comfort or sensuality or power, or profit, more important. And it's time to trade kings. To understand our story, there's a lot of characters today, so we have lots up here to keep track of. Naaman is a Syrian Gentile living to the north and to the east of Israel. Jehoram, we learned about a few weeks ago, he's the evil king, doesn't interact with God at all, but he's king of Israel to the north. Elisha is the prophet of God who's trying to woo these kings back to God. And he has a servant by the name of Gehazi. And the two of them work together to teach Jews and Gentiles how to find God. We're going to learn lots of lessons from lots of characters. But really there's primarily two I want to focus on. Number one is Naaman. He's going to trade kings. His whole life has been about power and wealth and prestige and profit. And he's going to trade those things, as good as they are and as nice as they are, he's going to trade them for God, Yahweh, and his prophet as his highest priority. Meanwhile, Gehazi, who theoretically is centered on God and being his prophet, he's going to decide that using God as a prophet or stealing a prophet is better than having God as his prophet. The Gentile will move toward God. The Jew will move away from God. In this really incredible story. One of my favorite from 2 Kings. So, as so we look at that together, my hope for us is number one, you're going to diagnose your own king. It's like me, you're going to see your kings and all these different characters. Oh, that's me, that's me. Two, that we will repent together and swap kings. But also we'll learn how to glorify God in whatever circumstances we're in. So I'll start with Naaman. Naaman, again, his whole life has been built on power, prestige, and profit. He is a mighty warrior from Syria. But we also have this unnamed little girl in our story. She's an Israelite living up in the northern kingdom. 
we're going to find that this Gentile commander and this Israelite slave girl are better at reflecting God's love and better at repenting of ego than all the kings of Israel. Story begins. Now Naaman, a commander of the army of Syria, which against to the north and to the east of Israel, he was a great and honorable man in the eyes of his master, because by him the Lord, ah, the Lord's over all nations, had given him victory in Syria. However, when the Syrians had gone on raids, oh, let me back up, he was a mighty man of valor, but his skin was not the skin color of a Syrian Gentile. No, despite all the prestige and all the power and all the might he had, he was a leper. A debilitating condition that makes your skin turn white. It also, your nerve endings stop working, so you, literally chunks of you start coming out because you don't realize you've been cut or bruised over time. He was a leper. Now, the Syrians had gone out on raids along Israel, and they had brought back a captive little girl from the land of Israel. And this little girl has been stolen from her homeland, taken away from her family, taken away from her friends. How would you feel if you were the little girl? And how would you feel about the fact you're now working for the people who kidnapped you? Well, she's now working for Naaman's wife and Naaman. She waited on Naaman's wife. Then she said to the mistress, hearing about his leprosy day in and day out, if only my master, what? What would you think? What would you want your master who'd kidnapped you? If only my master would die a slow and painful death. That's what I might be saying. Look at how she loves her enemies, cares for those around her, and reflects the love of God. If only my master were with the prophet who is in Samaria, he would heal him of his leprosy. Loving your enemies, caring for those, glorifying God in your current, though difficult, circumstances. Well, Naaman hears this. He went and told his master, saying, hey, thus and thus, says the girl who's from the land of Israel... I tried everything, I'll try this. So the king of Syria sent him, go now, with a letter to the king of Israel, Jehoram. He arrives. Now, he knows there's no such thing as a free lunch. You've got to pay for miracles. You don't get anything if you don't give anything. So he took with him 10 talents of silver, 6,000 shekels of gold, 10 changes of clothing, the best, wealthiest clothing, Many commentators think this is the equivalent of about a million dollars in our currency he's got with him. He brought the letter to the king of Israel, which said, Now be advised, when this letter comes to you, O king, I have sent Naaman my servant to you, that you may heal him of his leprosy. The pressure's on if you're the king, huh? See, he didn't go to the prophet. He assumes, because his whole mindset is power and prestige, that the only one who could do a miracle would probably be the most important person in the kingdom, the king. And it happened. When the king of Israel read that letter, he tore his clothes and said, Am I God to kill and make alive that this man, the king of Syria, sends this man to me to heal him of his leprosy? Therefore, please consider, see, he seeks a quarrel with me. He's trying to start a war. So it was, the news of him tearing his clothes made it to Elisha. And Elisha, hearing that the king had torn his clothes, sent a letter to the king saying, Hey, why are you tearing your clothes? Why have you torn your clothes? 
Let him, Naaman, come to me. I'll point him to God. I want him to know there's a prophet of the real true God in Israel. So Naaman went with his horses down to the chariot to meet with Elisha. When he got there, Elisha doesn't even come out to meet him. Instead, he sends his servant Gehazi who comes out. And Elisha sent a messenger to him saying, Go, wash in the Jordan seven times. Your flesh will be restored and you will be clean. All right. Let's talk about this little girl for a second. Amazing, unnamed, captive little girl who was able to glorify God in her current circumstances. I'm sure she didn't like her circumstances. It'd be easy to resent her circumstances, be mad at God, not trust God, not think God's on the throne. This little girl still had God as king in her heart. And her God, despite allowing her to be kidnapped from her homeland, she wanted to glorify God in her current, difficult, horrific circumstances. Loving her enemies, reaching Gentiles and those around her. How are you doing on that? There's probably a list of things you wish were different. A health crisis, a family relationship crisis, things that aren't renewed are clicking the way it should be. There's people watching you. Your kids, your parents, your neighbors, your colleagues, those in your household. Are you able to say, I'm going to glorify God in these circumstances? I prayed for God to change him. He's not changing him right now. So I'm going to glorify God in them. That's God's will for our life, that we glorify him wherever we are. That we show him as our king reigning wherever we are. And that looks different in all circumstances. I mean, for me, one of the ways I try and invite people to God is build relationships, have good conversations with people. Spiritual matters come up as a natural part of discourse, each different with each person. That when it's appropriate, I try and create opportunities to invite them to church. I've had a couple of family members, and, or friends rather, that we've been talking to about faith and life and laughter and everything else for years. We keep inviting them. Yeah, we're going to come sometime. Keep inviting them. Oh, we'll definitely be here this week. Can't tell you how many times I've waited out on those nice little chairs by the front door. I affectionately call them the fool's bench because you end up being a fool for Christ, but you're like, I'm going to wait because they said they're going to be there this week, and you wait five minutes, ten minutes, you're like, I guess they're not coming. Oh, yeah, we slept in this week. Had one just at Christmas Eve. I invited a, a guy and his family that we've been building a relationship with for the last nine months, not really churchgoers at all, never been really to, to a church, let alone ours. And sure enough, I was waiting out the fool's bench. I invited them. It's like the perfect opportunity. And sure enough, the family came. And as they're walking in the front door, that's the very moment the water line broke. We got them in here, and they got the end of service. We took them to dinner the next day or lunch, and they just talked about how amazing the service was and how much grace they saw under pressure at our Christmas Eve service. Didn't prefer the water leak, but how do we glorify God in the water leak? Are you glorifying God in your current circumstances? And are you using the opportunities around you? For the last month, we've had in your program a list of our teaching schedule. And that's not really because we want to kill paper and, and don't like trees. It's because it's a tool for you and I to look at where we headed in the next couple weeks. 
next couple months, between now and May? What are the topics so that you might think to yourself, oh my goodness, I've been talking to somebody about some marriage challenges. That might be a great week to invite them. That's a great speaker to invite them to. It's a great series to invite them to. Maybe this idea of the historical perspective of the kings and everything we've learned so far. You're like, man, this might be a series for a friend who really likes digging into history but also learning application. Or maybe you want to invite them to our 11 o'clock exploring service. We've been interviewing and getting interviews of several celebrities from Tony Dungy that we got a video interview of and, and Sean Johnson, Olympic, um, Olympic uh, gymnast that we talked about last week. Say so I'm talking about a, a news reporter. And then next week I'll have a live interview in our series Live and Learn with a Navy SEAL. Maybe that would be somebody that would be great for you to say it's, it's time to invite somebody to come and hear the gospel clearly presented. Or maybe it's not the Live and Learn series. Maybe it's the next series we do. You've got a science person. We're going to look at God through the microscope and through the telescope and see the amazing evidence that points to God for our Down to an Earth series that we're doing. Or maybe it's one of our guest speakers. Chad Williams is going to be here next week. He's a Navy SEAL. You know he's tough because his name is Chad. Right? It's just self-explanatory. Um, we're going to be interviewing him on all three services. We'll dig more into the text here because this very passage we're studying today is what brought him to Christ as a Navy SEAL. And I'll be sharing mostly his story about Navy SEAL and finding out that everything he accomplished didn't really meet his final needs and God was the ultimate fulfillment of those needs in a clear gospel presentation at the 11 o'clock service if you're inviting a friend. Beth Guggenberger is going to be here on the 26th. You've heard her many times. You know what, how powerful speaker she is. Shanti Feldhahn, who specializes in marriage. She's a Harvard-trained researcher who speaks around the world about the research and how to get to understand how men and women think differently. She'll be here on April 23rd speaking at all three services. And then, uh, if you never heard uh, David Nasser, we had to move him to May 7th for a variety of reasons. Um, he is going to talk about his journey from Islam to Christianity and understanding the message of grace. So again, use these as opportunities to, as you're having conversations with friends, invite them into opportunities. Or maybe it's, you're more like the little girl. You're just going to serve people by loving on them well. We had that happen this week. I don't know how many of you know Deborah Burke. She turned 70 this week. And Deborah has MS. She's been coming since 2013, but because of her condition getting worse and worse, she can't make it to church or to her Bible study without help. And during COVID, she was very, very isolated. And so her small group Bible study women missed her, and so they said, we gotta, we got to get her out of the house and love on her a bit. So they did a couple things. One, Ruthie Price came, borrowed a, a, a wheelchair from the church, and went and got her and took her to Kenwood Mall. She hadn't been to the mall forever. She hadn't, hadn't gotten out in a while. And God does it. This was just amazing to feel loved on and cared for and, and, and to just get out of the house. She left this incredible message for the, for the women at the church. And they said, we got to do more. You know what? If this is so helpful. We need to buy her a wheelchair. So Jill took her wheelchair shopping for three hours. I don't love anyone enough to go shopping for three hours. Can I just say that? I mean, I know I should. Maybe Jesus would, but no. Three hours of, of shopping for a wheelchair and then decide to find a better deal to get the same one. Amazon got this wheelchair. This week was 70th birthday time. Hey, come to the church. We're going to give you a wheelchair that we bought for you. So your life can just be a little bit easier. Meanwhile, there's another person in our church, Larry. And one of his hobbies is taking these old rascal scooters and, and taking the ones that are broken, replacing the batteries and making them work again. So I called up and said, do you think you might have an extra scooter? I don't know, let me check. Yeah. Picked up the scooter, brought the scooter in. Some other people at the church polished it up, made it look like brand new. Deborah walks into the church thinking she's going to get a wheelchair, which she did. But what comes out is what looks like a brand new scooter. With big balloons that say happy 70th. 
She was rolling around the church, taking pictures with everybody in her new scooter, and she said, I cannot wait to take my scooter to see my granddaughter's soccer game. That's what it looks like, each person using their gift, the scooter gift, the polishing, cleaning up gift, the care and hospitality gift to glorify God and meet the needs around us. What does it look like for you? Now let's contrast that with the king. This king does a terrible job <laughs> of pointing people to God. A terrible job of taking someone in need and saying, hey, you know what you really need is the God of Israel. Because he doesn't have a relationship with the God of Israel. He doesn't ever think about turning to God of Israel himself. Why would he point anyone else there? So what happened? The king of Israel, when he comes, tears it up. It's all about me. Kill me. I'm gonna, it's going to be a war for me. i got a war to go to battle with. Oh, my goodness. He doesn't glorify God in a circumstance. And Elisha has to say, why aren't you pointing him to God? So it was. Elisha says, hey, king of Israel, why are you tearing your clothes? Send him to me. And I'm going to point him to God, right? I want him to know that there is a prophet in Israel. But it must not be about being a prophet because he doesn't come out. It's about pointing him to a prophet that points people to God. So Naaman shows up with his horses. When he shows up, how would you respond if every time you're in a room, everyone wants to shake your hand, everyone wants to get to know you, you're used to pomp and circumstance, you're used to a certain VIP treatment, and name it certainly is. And now you come to Elisha, the great prophet of God, and he doesn't even come out to give you the time of day. Instead, he sends a messenger. And he says, hey, uh, great, you need some uh, leprosy taken care of? Go wash in the Jordan seven times. Then your flesh will be restored and you'll be clean. Naaman is furious. This is not the treatment he's used to. Talking to a servant? Don't you know I'm a VIP? Don't you know I'm important? Important people should be treated in an important way because my king is importance and profit and power. So when Naaman became furious, he went away and said, Indeed, I said to myself, Here's, by the way, how you can find your true king. Listen to how you talk to yourself. Oh, I can't believe how inefficient it is around here. I can't believe I don't care about people. I don't care. There's your God. He said to himself, he will surely, I said to myself, he will surely come out to me, he the prophet. He'll, he'll call on the name of the Lord his God. He'll wave his hand over this place in an incantation of some sort. And it will heal my leprosy. How often do we miss out on what God wants to do because we have a but I thought he would do it this way mindset? But I thought it would be a big display, not a little bitty box. But I thought God would make it work out like this way and this timing, but God does it this way and that timing. And then <laughs> he looks at the Jordan River. What a dump. That's what the Hebrew means here. Are not the Abana and the Farpah, the rivers of Damascus, the beautiful landscaped places I'm from in Damascus, better than all the waters of this dump in Israel? Could I not go wash in them and be clean? Did I dr drive all this way on my chariot to hear go take a bath in a dirty river? No. So he turned away and went away in a rage. And this is why most of us miss out on the gospel. It's just too simple. I'm going to believe God can do something with, with magic water. It's not the water. It's your belief in God. 
We'd rather believe in ourselves, believe in big things and big works and big, imagine, big amazing things we do for him. And it's our faith in our own works and our own prestige that keep us from the simple message of the gospel. He turned away in a rage. Now keep in mind, he's traveled an awful lot of distance. He's come from Syria all the way to Samaria there in Israel. Now he's been told to walk again over to the Jordan River. And he's thinking to himself, I live in Damascus, a very wealthy place, a very powerful place that's on a river. If a river would have done it, I would have got it taken care of by now. And our rivers are beautiful. Look at that. Landscaped rivers, beautiful rivers, waterfalls, man-made waterfalls, and natural waterfalls. That's where you'd want to take a bath. And you want me to not take a bath at the beautiful places, but to go to this sterile, stagnant dump of a Jordan River years? That's his mindset. But thank goodness he has servants that point him to think a little clearer. See, he brought servants with him to carry all that stuff. And his servants came and spoke to him and said, my father, if the prophet had told you to do something great, big things, big things, right? Attack things, battles. You would have done it, right? Yeah, I do big things. Well, then how much more should we just give it a shot when he says to you, wash and be clean? We're here. You're all upset. You made it all about your ego. Let's try it. And he had enough humility to listen to the people around him and say, all right. So he went down to the Jordan River. And sure enough, he plunges under. One, push, nothing. Couldn't I at least be one-seventh clean? Two, nothing. Two-seventh clean? Nothing. Three, four, five, six. And the seventh time down, push, comes up, almost, almost afraid to open his eyes, comes out of the water and push. His skin is washed back to its original Gentile Syrian color, which the Bible describes his flesh was restored like the flesh of a little child, and he was clean. Not because of the magic waters of the Jordan. I've been in it. It's not magic. Because he believed the simple message that I can't fix my own problem. That's a message of the Bible. You can't fix your own problem. Only God can fix your problem. And you replace God with something else. And God wants to offer you forgiveness for replacing him with something as silly as money or profit or power or applause. God died for you. So by putting your trust in him, he can restore you. And what he did to him physically, he does to us spiritually. He washes us clean. As we sang earlier, that the leper spots can be removed white as snow. That's the message of the gospel. And for many of us, then, we go and be baptized as an expression to our friends. Let our friends come and see physically what's happening so that they can picture what already happened to us spiritually. And if you've never been baptized, maybe this is the year you're like, I want to use baptism, not because I have to, not because it gets me to heaven. It's a chance to glorify God amongst my family and friends to draw them to the God that's changed me. So that's our first God. Our first character was Naaman, who swapped from power and prophet to God and his prophet. Now we move on to our main character being Gehazi. Now Gehazi is our, our Jewish counterpart who does the opposite. He trades God for money. He's going to go from being a prophet to stealing a prophet. While Elisha has made being God, God and being a prophet his number one priority, Gehazi makes God giving him a prophet 
or as a way to profit his highest king and priority. Here's what happens. So he went down and dipped seven times in Jordan, according to what man said, and he's cleansed. He returned to the man of God, and he's so grateful, he's so thankful, he's so overwhelmed with God's incredible forgiveness, incredible cleansing. He and all his servants, all his aides, and they came and they stood before him and said, Indeed, now I know that there is no God in all the earth except the God of Israel. Mission accomplished. Therefore, please, please take this gift from your servants. I've got to give you my million dollars. I'm so grateful. I'm so thankful. I'm so overwhelmed. There's nothing wrong with giving in response to God's forgiveness. But in this case, Elisha doesn't want the Gentiles confused about grace versus works. But he said, this is Elisha speaking, as I live, as the Lord lives, for whom I stand, I'm not going to receive any of this because I don't want you to misunderstand that it was money and the offer of money that got you this. This was purely a gift of God, and you don't buy gifts. And Naaman's like, no, 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 please, 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 I'm so thankful, please. And Naaman urged him, please take it, take it, take it. And Elisha refused a million dollars. So Naaman said, all right, well, okay, if you won't take my million dollars, can I ask you for one more thing? Okay, this is kind of working backwards. Okay, what, what do you want? Would, would you mind if you let your servant take two mule loads of dirt with me? I'd like to take two wheelbarrows full of dirt back to Syria. Uh, okay. And he says, for your servant will no longer offer burnt offerings or sacrifice to any other god, only to the Lord. In the Syrian mindset, in the worldview of the Syrians, God reigns over certain lands. So if God reigns over Israel, I need some of that Israel dirt with me so God will reign where I go. So he's taking two truckloads of dirt or two mule loads of dirt with him so he can say, God is going to be with me wherever I go. I sacrifice to this God on his dirt in his land. That's his mindset. He's saying, I want to take God with me is another way of thinking about it. Yet, he says, I need some help, Elisha. I'm thinking about what it looks like for me to live out being a follower of Yahweh in my old job. It's going to be complicated. <laughs> it's going to be really complicated to be a Syrian warrior where we serve different gods called Rimon. I need, I need help and I already need a pardon. Pardon you for what? He tells you. When my master takes me, my boss, he takes me into the temple of Rimon to worship there. He's going to lean on my hand, because he always does. It's part of our protocol. He leans on my hand, and we both bow down to Rimon in the temple. That's my protocol. That's my job. That's what i got to do. When I bow down the temple to Rimnon, though, hey, the Lord pardon me. I'm bowing down physically, but I'm not bowing down spiritually in my heart. Could the Lord pardon me if that's just kind of what I have to do as part of my job? What would you say? No, stand up for Jesus. No, you don't bow down to those ridiculous foreign gods. That's what I might say. Elisha says, yeah, living out this Christian life, it's messy. If you need to bow down to him in protocol, but in your heart you know that you're bound down to nothing but a statue, Elisha says, yep, go in peace. Shalom. What? Name is working out. What does it look like for God to be my king in my life? He's thinking through the implications and the ramifications of it. Elijah's like, you're thinking the right way. 
How do I start incorporating this into my life? Go in peace. So he departed from him a short distance. Now, who is Rimon? Rimon is the Syrian name for Baal. You remember Baal? We've talked about Baal a lot. So Baal has a dad named El here on the left-hand side. El's name was the Most High God. His son, Baal, is the fertility god. He's the god that represented uh, both sensuality and your workplace. He controlled the weather. He had lightning bolts like Zeus. And so often, worshiping Baal was you slept around with all the prostitutes of Baal because by fertilizing them, you were asking Baal to fertilize the earth. See, a man came up with this religion, can't you? Anyway, so, so Baal becomes the god. Now, Baal becomes very famous because he dies in the Baal myth. He dies because he's killed by the god Yam, the god Hades. So he dies, and his sister and his mother raise him from the dead. So Baal is the all-powerful one, takes the place of his dad, El, because he's a dying, rising god. Which is why Satan has never had an original idea in his life. He just copycats and counterfeits the real story of God's plan. But he's like, listen, I know that Baal's not the real God. I know that Yam's not the real God. I know that Rimnon, that's our name for, is not the real God. But it's going to be messy. I'm trying to figure out how to play this out in my life. It's interesting because Paul says something similar. He's talking in Corinthians. And whenever you did business, you did business in the name of Zeus. That was the marketplace. It was Zeus's marketplace or Demeter's marketplace. And so people are wondering, like, hey, if food was sacrificed to Zeus or to Demeter, am I allowed to eat it? Because that's like, that's like devil food. That's like idol food. That's like Zeus food. But it's like I can't do business unless I acknowledge I'm in Zeus's courtyard. And look at how much freedom Paul gives. It's really fascinating. Concerning the eating of things offered to idols. Hey, guys, let's not forget. An idol is nothing in the world. It's just a big rock. And there's no other God but one. For even if there are so-called gods, whether in heaven or earth, don't worry about it. God doesn't, food does not commend you to God. When you eat something, it doesn't make you closer to God. When you eat, you're not better. And if you don't eat, you're not worse. Let's not make a big deal about food. And let's not make a big deal about the rock statues. He goes on in another passage and says, However, if a non-Christian, a Zeus follower, uh, a Demeter follower, invites you to dinner, and you want to go, go. Eat whatever is set before you. What if they just sacrificed a Demeter? He says, don't ask. <laughs> don't ask any questions for your conscience sake. He goes on to say, if it bothers your conscience, don't eat it. But realize it's just a rock. Don't ask questions. Allow yourself to, to be a witness for God amongst your Gentile friends. It's messy, he's saying. And I want you to enter the messiness of figuring out how to make God king of your life. Isn't that amazing? Now let's move to Gehazi. So Gehazi looks like one of the good guys. Man, he's, he's working for Elisha. He's one of Elisha's servants. He's all about the, let's be a, 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 a prophet for God. But now he just saw his master turn down a million bucks. I mean, it's one thing to be a prophet of God. It's another thing to be an idiot, right? He goes, you know what? I don't mind worshiping God as long as it helps me be profitable. But he decides to trade kings from God as prophet to God as a way to profit. And this is uh, actually some archaeological finds of what gold, silver, and um, wardrobes would have looked like from some archaeological finds from that time period. So this is what was sitting right in front of him. You guys want this? Elisha says no. Not because Elisha's against money or against profit. As you'll see later, it's just not the right time for it. Because it's going to confuse the gospel. So Gehazi does what we all do. So don't condemn Gehazi too much because this is you and this is me. Whenever we compromise, whenever we lie, whenever we serve an idol, we go through the same steps he did. Step number one, 
I justify my compromise because I deserve it. I know. I mean, Elisha doesn't realize how hard we work around here. We really deserve that money. Uh, he, I'm going to spend it on some good stuff. So Gehazi, the servant of Elisha, the man of God, said, Look, my master spared name in the Syrian, but he didn't take money from his hands. As the Lord lives, I'm going to run after him and I'm going to take something from him. I'm, a, I'm just a lot smarter than that. So in his mind, he's like, Hey, we deserve this. And how many ways have we talked ourselves into something because we deserve it? So we fudge a little bit, we lie a little bit, we compromise a little bit. But it's okay because I deserve it. And life and God's not giving me what I deserve, so I'm just going to kind of tweak it, help it out a little bit. The next step (laughs) is I make up a story. Right? Whenever we compromise, we end up making a story, a lie to protect it. And then we spiritualize our priorities. Oh, I'm really trying to do it. This money's going to be for some good things. So Gehazi pursued Naaman, and Naaman saw him running after him, and he got down from his chariot to meet him and said, is it well? And Gehazi says, oh, it's all well. But you know, an amazing thing happened just as you left. My master sent me after you, lie, saying, you know, two out-of-town guests just showed up. They're two sons of the prophets. They're missionaries. And, And they've come to me from the mountain of Ephraim, very important place. If you could just maybe give me a talent of silver, it's not for me, it's for them. And maybe just two of those garments, it's not for me, it's, it's for the missionaries. That would be great. And Naaman, he's thrilled, right, because he wanted to be generous anyway. Sure. Then what do you do next? Whenever you lie, you then hide. <laughs> you hide the fact you've been lying. So Naaman said, great, please take two talents. He urged him, but take some more. Bound two talents of silver in two bags. Take two changes of garments. He hand them to the two of his servants. So now Gehazi and his servants are on their way back. He came to the citadel. And he took them from their hand, thank you servants, I'll give them to the missionaries. And he stored them away in his own house. And he let the men go, get away from me, boy, you bother me. And they departed. And now he has a moment like Naaman did, when his servant said, hey, are you doing the wrong thing here? Maybe it's time to repent. You shouldn't be furious about this. Let's try that God thing. Gehazi's going to have a moment with Elisha. Will he repent? By the way, if you're going to lie and going to compromise, don't do it if your boss is a prophet that can see supernatural things. Just a good rule of thumb here. Number four, he refuses to repent, realign, and restore. Now he went in, he stood before his master, Elisha says to him, Hey, uh, Gazi, where'd you just go? He could repent then, I'm so sorry. Or, oh, I've been caught. You know what? I'm out of God's will. I did. I disobeyed. And Elisha says, uh, he apparently doesn't say anything because Elisha says, oh no, he does say, your servant did not go anywhere. I, I didn't go anywhere. I didn't go anywhere. I didn't do anything. I didn't do anything. Why would you think I did something? He said to him, did not my heart go with you when the man turned back from his chariot to meet you? At this point, you definitely ought to repent. The guy saw me in a vision exactly what I did. Time to repent. Time to realign. Time to restore. He doesn't. So the next line is, guys, this, Gazi, this is in the right time. There's a time for accepting profit. There's a time for accepting gifts. But when we're trying to primarily proclaim the grace gospel to the Gentiles, it's not it. Is it time to receive money and receive clothing, olive groves and vineyards, sheep and oxen, male and female servants? No. You have di- you've given the chance of distorting the gospel for your own benefit. Therefore, because of that, the leprosy of Naaman will not only stick to you, but to stick to all your descendants. Oh. And he went off from his presence as white as 
snow. And now you see all the ironies of this book. The Gentile who is white is cleansed back to his Middle Eastern skin color. The Middle Eastern spiritual man who looked white has a dark heart. He now looks white on the outside, though his heart is dark on the inside. All because one knew how to repent of his ego, the other would not repent of his ego. One would reflect God's love, the other would be clueless to reflecting God's love. So how about you? And how about me? If given the opportunity, today, I bet you one of these characters you identified with more. Maybe it was the sensuality, maybe it's the I deserve, maybe it's the prophet, maybe it's the power, maybe it's I don't like my circumstances. What does it look like for you and I to realign ourselves to God, to repent of whatever we've replaced God with, and ask God to restore us back to relationship. God loves to restore. God loves wayward people when they trust him to get back in line. Whether you're wayward in your religion or wayward in your rebellion, God wants you to humble yourself and find him. Am I making God my first king? Because God didn't come to be your second king. Am I making glorifying him in my circumstances the most important thing? Am I making being a prophet to God in my circumstance my first priority? Have I let prophet or what I deserve become my first king? It's like, well, Chad, how many? I think it's like six of these apply to me. I'm like, yeah, like five apply to me too. Let's take a moment and repent together. Maybe you just want to pray before God and just say, God, forgive me for putting you in second place. Forgive me for replacing you with a good thing. Or maybe you want to say, God, forgive me for replacing you with a bad thing. Thank you for dying for me on that cross. And I want to again reaffirm that I trust you as my king. Wash me afresh again and align me to your kingdom. Father, we are wayward people with wayward hearts, wayward minds, wayward eyes, and wayward hands. Father, we thank you that you are the God that comes after us and offers us to be white as snow. In Jesus' name, amen.